I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is a return guest, Carl McColeman. He is a contemplative writer, speaker, retreat leader, catechist, and spiritual companion. He's also the co-host of a podcast called Encountering Silence and the author of several books, including Befriending Silence, Answering the Contemplative Call, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism. And today, we're going to be talking about his book called An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom, A Little Guide to Mystery, Spirit, and compassion. Carl, thank you so much for returning to Spark My Muse. Oh, it's a delight to be here, Lisa. Thank you. I really enjoyed your book, and you write in it that it's only a taste of the treasures found in the heart of the Celtic soul. It's also part of your history and ethnic background. I was curious to know if this expression of Christianity was something that was a family influence on you at all growing up. More echoes than anything else. Mm-hmm. My my father McCollman is a Scottish name. My father is third generation, I guess. Um, his grandfather, well, third or fourth, depending on how you count it. His grandfather, the the family folklore, was conceived in Scotland and born in Canada, mm-hmm. which means that my great grandmother, our great great grandmother, was actually pregnant on the boat. And that was in the 1850s, I believe. It was a little after the potato famine, but it was when the highlands were being cleared. And so people were being forced off of their ancestral land. So we don't have a lot of family family kind of you know solid fact, but we can infer that, that they traveled under duress. You know, it was kind of a difficult time. And so, so the family came over here and, um, and my dad's family would have been Presbyterian, but he his his father was not a practicing Christian. His mother was a Methodist, and so my dad was kind of sort of raised Methodist. Mm-hmm. Then married my mother, who was a Lutheran. So then mm-hmm. got more involved in kind of a Lutheran expression. So there wasn't the kind of traditional, I guess, you know, stories of the saints or stories of the the the, the feast days or anything like that. But. My father was a storyteller. Mm. He loved to tell stories. And so he worked with the material he had, which tended to be his experience as an Air Force officer. So lots of, you know, kind of war stories or military stories. He was an avid sportsman. He was a hunter and a fisherman. So he was a great one for telling telling stories about you know, his, you know, exploits mm. in the woods, if you will. <laughs> and he just, and he loved a good joke, you know, so, so, so there was, there was that piece as well. But even when he was in his, his older years, he passed away about five years ago at, at the age of 89, even, even in his older years, he, he would surprise me. He, you know, again, very, you know, uh, he was an Air Force pilot, you know, very much kind of a, a man of, of science and of, you know, kind of fact and, and, you know, anchored in the real world and he told me not long before he died that 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 he could see spirits oh wow and (laughs) (laughs) okay you know this is a new one on me and I think maybe it was because he was he was in his 80s at that point and I think he was 
he was, you know, maybe a little less guarded, you know, so this it was that kind of thing. And I also remember one time we were out taking a walk and we, we just came across a little ring of mushrooms. Huh. And he said, well, look, a fairy ring. Oh. And I said, how did you know about fairy rings? <laughs> so, so there was this kind of this whole, um, I don't know, you know, dimension of him that I just was never exposed to. And, you know, this is part of the tragedy of, of ancestral wisdom is that when our ancestors pass away, mm. it's gone. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, so when did you first put your toe into some of this stuff that's really sort of part of your heritage, but but you really got much more immersed in it. When did that come along in your life? How did I rediscover it might be yeah. the question. Well, well, I think we, um, the you know, the, the family did have an appreciation that our ancestry was Scottish. You know, as 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 a youth, I remember my my brother did research into our, our family tartan and what our, our uh, Scottish clan was, you know, and that kind of thing. So, the, so there was a little bit of, um, you know, just this sense of, of family identity. But then in terms of discovering the spiritual tradition, well, I guess as a youth, I was, you know, I had kind of the romantic interest in the Druids and in, you know, Stonehenge and those kinds of things, but never really learned the Christian tradition of, of Celtic spirituality until I was an adult. Mm. And there was, I guess, back in the 80s and 90s, there was kind of a little, I guess, publishing boom of books on Celtic spirituality. And, and I remember just picking one up that was published in the United Kingdom. It was called Celtic Christianity, Ecology and Holiness. And I think the author's name was Ian Bradley. And it was just, it was just a, a collection of Celtic prayers and sayings and, and, and short stories, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just captured my imagination. Mm -hmm. And so from there, you know, I, I became a little bit of kind of, I guess, an armchair you know, student of, of Celtic spirituality and began to learn about the, the various saints and the, the holy places. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's ironic. I have never been to Scotland, although that's changing next year. I'm, oh. I'm leading a retreat in, in Scotland uh, next July. So it'll be my first time there. I'm very excited. But I've been to Ireland numerous times. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, so I, I know the Irish tradition a little bit better than the Scottish tradition, but I'm, you know, trying to trying to get caught up, I guess. Oh, that's really wonderful. One of the neatest things about the tradition is that um, the Celtic tradition embraced Christianity. You write that they embraced a way of following Jesus that had not been compromised by worldly power of the urban cities of Rome and Alexandria or Constantinople. And we really underestimate this impact of, of empire and, and hierarchy that happened when when those um, urban centers dominated how the expression of Christianity was imparted, I guess you could say, and um, in, in the devotion and practice of it. Um, I would love it if you could give us a little bit of the lay of the land and the consequences for this expression that happened in Celtic tradition. Well, first of all, um, even here in uh, 2018, we're still feeling the effects of it. Mm. You know, the, re the recent report from the Pennsylvania grand jury about the, just the, the tragic history of sexual abuse and, and institutional cover-up mm. that took place over, what, a 70-year period in several dioceses of, of the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania. And we know that 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 problems like this have existed throughout 
throughout the Catholic world and, and not just the Catholic world. But, the, but it's, it's particularly odious in the Catholic world because of the institution and because of the hierarchy mm. that, that has, has had this kind of cultural default setting of protecting the institution before seeking justice and care for those who have been hurt. And that is the sad legacy of the Christianity of empire. Mm. The magisterium, the, the hierarchy of, of the Catholic world is very much based on the kind of civil servant structure of mm. Rome. And so, you know, even you could even say that when the papacy kind of asserted its kind of temporal power, its, its power not only as the leader of the church, but as a force to be reckoned with in the politics of the Roman world, it was the the Pope was just stepping into a vacuum that had been left mm-hmm. by the by the emperor, mm-hmm. and you know, and with the idea of Rome being in decline in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and following centuries, the you know the religious leadership just kind of stepped into that vacuum. So you know, so this is something that I think the. Christianity still struggles with, obviously in the Catholic world, but there are echoes of it in in other ecclesial traditions within Christianity as well. Mm-hmm. But the what's fascinating about when we start talking about the Celtic world and when we're talking about Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, uh, Brittany, which is the westernmost part of France, where the, where the Breton language, which is a language similar to Welsh, was spoken. You know, these were lands that never fully were conquered by Rome. Mm. And so what you see is that when Christianity moves into the Celtic lands, it's moving into into a region that may have had economic or trading relationships with Rome, but was never under kind of political dominance. And so so you're moving outside of the culture of empire. Mm. And and in terms of the Western church, the Celts were really the first ones who were evangelized, moving beyond the reach of, of the political arm of Rome. And so, so it's, it's an interesting kind of question is, how did Christianity kind of take root in, that, in those lands? What is the literature that, that emerged? What kind of stories were told? What do we know about the, the early Christian leaders, their uh, their community structures, the people who got um, recognized as saints. What are their stories? And you know, and it's become this kind of interesting question. You, there there has been literature that suggested there was a Celtic church, and then there there are other scholars who say no, there was no such thing as a Celtic church. There was there was a Christian presence in the Celtic lands, and I tend to to lean more towards that. I I think it's important not to overstate the case that, you know, the, the Christians in Ireland and Scotland were, were reading the same gospels that Christians everywhere else were reading. They were practicing the same sacraments that Christians everywhere else were reading. So there's, there's continuity just as there is discontinuity. But of course it's the discontinuity that fascinates us today. And that has given us this kind of unique way of approaching early Christianity, and, and then thinking how that can speak to our spiritual needs here in the 21st century. Mm. And some of those distinctions are, are quite surprising. Um, that They surprised me when I first started learning, too. Some of the egalitarian 
differences and some of the ways that the monastic community or the uh, the priests of of the church the community is centered around the church and maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those distinctions well uh let's let's start again by going back to the whole notion of the urban centers that mm. the christianity in the roman world really traveled initially through the urban centers eventually what you find emerging are christians that leave the urban centers for wilderness places, particularly for the desert. Anyone who's a student of the history of Christian spirituality, they run into the desert mothers and fathers, people who lived initially as hermits, but then later in monastic communities in Egypt, in Palestine, in Syria, in those places. And they really, they, they gravitated toward the desert and they saw themselves as imitating Christ's 40 days in the desert, although for them it wasn't just 40 days, it would be a lifetime. Mm. So what you see is um, in, in the Celtic lands is you don't have urban centers. Most of the cities that we associate with Scotland or Ireland, places like that, those cities come later. They come with the, with the Vikings, with the Norse invasions, or with the coming of the... Of the um, the, the Anglo-Saxons. So, so Galway and Dublin, for example, in Ireland, those were, those were Viking settlements, mm. which means they, they weren't founded until the 8th, 9th, or even 10th century. Whereas Christianity has a presence, uh, you know, Patrick is a murky figure, but Patrick is basically kind of a 5th century figure. So you figure, you know, as early as the 5th century, there's a Christian presence in the Celtic lands. Before there are cities, and so what you find is without cities, there's really not much need for bishops. Mm. And so Christianity spreads primarily through this kind of monastic culture that gets imported from the desert region. And so this idea of that, that entering into a Christian community is entering into an intentional community. Mm. Not, again, not an urban center. We, we might think of it more as like a village so it would be a monastic village, but what would be unique about it is you would have both persons who have kind of this celibate monastic lifestyle that we think of. The word monos means solo or alone, you know, people who live alone for God. But in the same uh, kind of enclosure would be families, would be folks that, that still have kind of a married life and are raising children. So so the 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 monastic settlement would be this kind of integral community with people at different stations in life all living together. Now, they would be segregated. The celibate men would have their own place and the celibate women their own place. And then the families probably in kind of a circle around the, the vowed monastics. But they were all seen as, as integral members of the same community. And then the abbot or the abbess would be the spiritual leader of the entire community. And that's one of the things that's really mm. fascinating is that we do have fairly strong evidence, again, from the from the, the literary tradition, that women could be spiritual leaders of these communities, which would mean that they would have spiritual authority over men as well as women, which was something you didn't really see in other parts of the church. Mm. So so this this idea that that um that women were at least in the monastic sense, 
were just as capable of leadership roles as men were. Now, when you get into the more traditional diocesan kind of role, the priests and the bishops, that kind of thing, then you still see the the more you know kind of gendered uh, culture. But but in terms of just the intentional community, women could could uh, uh, take on positions of leadership. So, let me ask you: say it's a, a village of maybe. 100 or 150 people or so, or, or smaller. And then you have the, the celibate men and women more centralized, and then around them, the other people living there. Would the abbot or the abbess be in charge of care for every single person within that grouping? In terms of the spiritual leadership, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, they're, um, and you know now we're we're kind of getting into 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 Celtic kind of culture, mm-hmm. and and the thing uh, to keep in mind is that the Celts would and, and this is this is a bad analogy and and people can can misconstrue it but I can't think of a better one. Celtic society would have much more in common with what we tend to think of as Native American society than with Roman society. So it was a mm-hmm. tribal kinship-based society. In fact, when you mm-hmm. think of the Scottish clans, mm-hmm. you, had the, you had the clan MacDonalds and the clan Buchanans and you know, mm-hmm. uh, clan Fraser, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these, these are, are communities that are structured according to kinship. Mm-hmm. The leader of the community would have been somebody who could very easily have been the patriarch or the matriarch mm-hmm. of of that basically extended family. There's pretty solid evidence from what we know of, and I'm going to speak about Ireland because I know Ireland better than, than the other regions. The Celtic legal system is called the Brayan Laws. In the Brayan Laws, women had virtually just the exact same rights that the men had. They could sell property, they could own property, uh, they could be in positions of leadership within the community. So a question that I don't know that I'm qualified to answer, you might have to find a better scholar than me, is that in a community like that, would the abbot or abbess as the spiritual leader also function as more or less the chieftain of the tribe? My sense is, is that they would that they would have both that temporal and that spiritual leadership. But that may not have been true across the board either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, and I'm sure changed a lot of the ways things were done, maybe been more democratic in, in many ways then. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting expression of Christianity. And you talk about how that that is what we're saying an expression of christianity and it, christianity looks different in different places in the world uh, i think that's it's an interesting thing to note that um sometimes we see christianity in one culture and it's like this is it this is the real one <laughs> yeah and and there's been a real kind of european dominance mm-hmm. and and you know and i think that's still very much Maybe the case, certainly in North America, where there's, you know, I mean, the, think of the conversation we're having about white privilege, and and for many many people who are of European ancestry, can't even wrap their minds around white privilege, mm-hmm. and yet it's, you know, I think that's because our our system of social privilege is so embedded 
in how we see society. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you literally have to step outside of that privilege or be in, in fairly intimate conversation with those who have not been the beneficiaries of such privilege before you can even, even realize it's there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, this is something that I think, you know, has, has become an increasing question in, in the Christian world. You know, for centuries, we had this kind of missionary impulse, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that your white European Christians would go out and save the world. But when they would go to places, you know, such as Africa or the the Far East or, you know, Latin America or whatever, you know, and encounter indigenous cultures, they not only wanted to bring the gospel, but they also wanted to bring their Eurocentric, white-centric culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so there's this kind of interesting question of, you know, and to what extent did missionary work actually undermine the spread of the gospel because it succumbed to this kind of cultural imperialism? It's a, it's a big mm-hmm. question and it's getting yeah. us way off of the Celtic <laughs> topic. Right, but, right. Um, you know, but, but I think, again, you know, maybe, maybe for Christians of European ancestry, i.e. white Christians, the Celts are kind of an interesting doorway to begin to think about this fact that the gospel really can be expressed in a variety of different cultural settings. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, maybe, you know, and, and I think a lot of people who are, are angry and frustrated with Christianity, they, they may want to stop and think about to what extent is my frustration with Christianity actually a frustration with this kind of Eurocentric cultural imperialism? Mm-hmm. So, but again, that's a big right, question. Right. And, and with how empire does Christianity, because I think that that kind of, colonization, if you will, of, of what starts out as empire, then colonizing other places and making it one big um, kind of homogenization. It was resisted in that in those areas. And then you can see how something else happened that was distinctly Christian, but also distinctly kept some of its cultural affects. And, and uh, that that is actually a beautiful thing and we can learn from it. And, and I think that that's what's, what can be so interesting about taking the gospel and allowing people within those countries to lead immediately. And, you know, and, and now how does this fit with what God is already sh- doing with you? Like we, we, we didn't bring God to you. God's been here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And how, how do these stories, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm all about narrative theology. Mm. How do these stories that we have imported from, you know, Israel or, or wherever, mm-hmm. how do they resonate and maybe shed light on your stories and vice versa? And mm. that, you know, that's where, you know, I think kind of the juice of evangelization comes in, you know, that it's not about, you know, we, we are evangelizing you, we are active, you are passive, your job mm. is to do what we tell you. And I think that that model has been dominant for too long. And again, that's an imperial model. Yeah. Of, of, you know, and, and no wonder, so many people both inside and outside the church are allergic to the concept of evangelization. Well, if mm. that's what you think evangelization is, 
says, you ought to be allergic to right. it. Right, right. He said, he said rather, rather imperialistically. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but if, but if, but if, um, if, if we can see evangelization as this idea that, okay, you know, out of this narrative comes this incredible, you know, kind of insight into good news, into spiritual good news. And let's talk about that. And let's talk about that in a way that is that is culturally sensitive and and mm-hmm. and and involves cultures meeting rather than cultures competing. Yeah, right. Then I think it, it becomes a very kind of exciting conversation to have, and one that I actually want to be a part of. Right, and and not where some culture wins and some culture loses in in the dialogue, because I think that's that's kind of like uh, it can be that missionaries evangelists think if they accept us and our message we have won if they don't then we haven't you know conquered them for jesus we have to send more resources (laughs) you have to say this particular prayer and then we know we did it we have a number to to send to the people funding us but um i think it's it's a very been a very very slow lesson but as um especially people of color in this country i noticed are um talking about having regretted going to places that have been uh, teaching them a colonized theology. And now they're pushing back and they're saying, wait a minute, there's other voices. And now I'm going to learn about those voices. And then I'm going to, you know, knowing that theology always needs an adjective before it, then um, it's, you know, there's there's new insights coming, but it's boy, it's taken a long time. <laughs> but moving on to prayer, I I was really intrigued by your um, chapter called "The Edge of Waiting" and that that language for contemplative prayer. Could you unpack a little bit of that? Well, and this is something that that you know I've I learned online. It's something I posted on my blog. I can't remember; it's been a while now. And somebody just left a comment, and they said, "Do you know the Irish word for contemplation?" Mm-hmm. And it's this long tongue twister of a word. And the best I can tell, having talked to several Irish speakers, is it you know, and they, and again, they're different areas in Ireland, so so different ways it would be pronounced, but rinshiv or rinishiv or something like that. But the word literally means to be at the edge of waiting. Mm -hmm. And that's the Irish word for contemplation. And if you were talking to an Irish Catholic who had a family member who joined a contemplative order of monks or nuns, that order is called an ordrinahiv, you know, what we would call contemplative order, they would call an order at the edge of waiting. And so it's just, I think it's so evocative and so embodied a way of understanding what the contemplative life or what contemplative spirituality is all about. You know, the word contemplative is one of those words that's kind of heady and kind of abstract. And, you know, the etymology of it is a little fuzzy. But this notion that to be brought to the edge. And and the word, the R-I-N-N in that word, the rin, literally means like a knife edge or the edge of a point or the edge of a spear, like the tip of a spear. So to be brought to this, this tip, this sharp place mm. where then we are called into not mastery, not 
conversation, not proclamation, not kerygma, to use a fancy word, but waiting, mm. waiting on the Holy One, waiting on the divine, you know, and of course it evokes immediately the wise and foolish virgins, you know, this idea of keeping vigil, which is a core monastic practice, mm. you know, and so that, that we, um, you know, and, and I think in, in, you know, at least in a North American Christianity in our time, we tend to equate contemplation very much with silent prayer. And I think that's an important connection there. But I think the edge of waiting reminds us that it's not just something you do, you know, sitting in silence for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, that this is really an entire way of being or way of seeing. And this idea that to be a contemplative is to acknowledge that spirituality is encircled by mystery and that that mystery comes to us sometimes in very visceral ways, sometimes in very kind of spoken ways, narrative, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But it also comes to us in silence and it also comes to us in hidden ways. And so that we are called not to, not to assume that we can master this, but to really adopt this, this posture of humility. Um, you know, there's the, the passage in, I can never remember what it is. Let me look it up. But in, in, I think, so if you go to, uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, to chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, where, where Paul talks about proclaiming the mystery of God. Mm. He talks about, you know, I, I came uh, not using sublime words or words of wisdom, but I came vulnerable, anxious, and afraid. I wanted to be clear that my message did not depend on my cleverness, but on God's power. And so, you know, that's a contemplative statement. This idea that um, that our relationship with God, our relationship with the divine, with the mystery of God, the phrase that Paul uses, is not predicated on us being in control, but is actually all about us not being in control, us surrendering control, and moving into that place where where we're vulnerable, where we are even anxious or afraid. Mm. But but in that place, we are our heart is open to the silent leading of the spirit, mm. you know, and our culture doesn't do this well. Mm. You know, we're, we, we are a culture that wants to be in control. We want to be in charge and we want our, our spiritual life to be all about mastery and control as well. Mm. I, I, I jokingly say my favorite prayer is, and this is a joke, but my favorite prayer is, you know, dear Lord, don't worry, I've got it all under control. <laughs> to which, to which, of course, God laughs. <laughs> but, but, but there is this kind of cultural idea that, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, and I, I mean, even in the New Testament, you think of like some of the language of, of armament, you know, putting on the armor of God, you know, the mm-hmm. sword of righteousness and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there, there, you, you get this kind of message that, that it's all about being in control, <laughs> and, and yet, yet the contemplative life says no, you surrender the control, mm. and again back to the Irish notion, enter into that edge of waiting, that vulnerable place where, where, you know, God's calling the shots mm. and, you know, and then of course, then we can, we can kind of dig deeper into this notion of the, of the place that silence plays mm-hmm. in the spiritual life. And, 
that takes me back to Hebrew, my favorite Hebrew word, um, demia, which is a word for silence, but it, the word has the connotation of a waiting silence, a silence that waits. Mm. So, um, you know, so there you go. At the edge of waiting, this place of deep silence where we're waiting on the leading of the spirit. Yeah, you mentioned in your book, Repose or Still Waiting, and I, that really hits me deeply, uh, thinking about that prayer, the, the apophatic prayer. The prayer doesn't always have to be this spoken, active, I hope I'm saying the right words, God, you know, <laughs> that, that we can actually wait, rest, be in silence before God. And, and that actually takes a lot of pressure off if you, if you think about it in those terms, because a lot of times, you know, there's performance anxiety or you could be perfectionist about things in the world and God does not require those things of us. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my, my favorite Buddhist authors is Pema Chodron. Mm. And she, I'm reading a book of hers right now called The Wisdom of No Escape. And, and, mm. and she talks about, you know, and I think what, what is true for Buddhists is just as true for Christians. She talks about this kind of project that we all have to improve ourselves. Mm. And she, <laughs> she, she says that that is a form of subtle aggression against the self. Mm. And I think, you know, as, as Christians, that is, that is something we might want to reflect on because we, we have this notion that obviously we're called to be holy, we're called to be righteous, we're called to repent. All of that is, is you know, that's just hardwired into the gospel. But then, you know, we are also called to receive the love of God. Mm. And, 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 you know, I think we have to be careful, you know, I mean, what are the two great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if, if we're not loving ourselves, if we're being aggressive to ourselves, then isn't that aggression going to spill over in how we relate to one another mm-hmm. and possibly even to how we relate to God? So, you know, so, so this is something that I think the, the contemplative stance, this stance to be at the edge of waiting is an invitation to really kind of rethink the entire project of what it means to be human. Mm. But it's very difficult because it's um, we're 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 so kind of programmed again to to that that we only feel safe if we feel in control. And and one of the things about entering into silence, well, the first thing is you encounter how how unsilent we are, you know, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we all have noisy minds. And then, you know, but again, you know, back to Pema Chodron, if you spend your, your, your silent prayer, just trying to empty your mind, it's another form of self-aggression. Mm. And, and I really don't think God, when, if we're going to give 20 minutes to God, God doesn't want us to be sitting there beating ourselves up the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, so. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, another really interesting um, part of the expression of the Celtic tradition and experience is this deep and abiding connection with nature and the real felt presence of God um, in and through creation. I think that that kind of difference than the the more dualistic uh, imposition of maybe Roman thought or Greek thought, uh, where God is up in heaven, harder to find. Um, and the difference here in the, in the Celtic tradition, maybe you can talk about the role of nature. And um, you, you talk about the, 
the nature is the cathedral and the wilderness is the basilica and the lovely garden is our neighborhood church. I, I love how you stated that and maybe you can kind of piece together what that meant for the Celtic people. Again, just just in the interest of transparency, the the literature is messy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so the you do find some of the kind of dualistic thinking thinking among the Celtic Christians. I want I want to I want to be clear that it's not like mm-hmm. these guys were absolutely perfect and they had it all figured out and, you know. <laughs> early on, early in the literature, you find poetry and the poetry is really where they shine. Mm. And 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 this just kind of celebration of the natural world, this kind of acknowledgement of the divine presence in the natural world and and especially with with animals there's you know just this love of animals and this sense that animals actually kind of partner with god spirit the divine however you want to name it in terms of bringing blessings bringing beatitude to the lives of the of the monks or the poets you know whoever is leaving this this literary record so it's um you know, a friend of mine from Belfast used to have a blog where the name of the blog was God is not elsewhere. And, you know, I, I emailed him and asked him, was that yours? And he said, no, it actually came from a friend of mine. So some anonymous person out there came up with this notion. But I think it, it just encapsulates kind of the, you know, the Celtic ethos. God mm-hmm. is not elsewhere. And, of course, you see it elsewhere. You, you think of the kind of the Ignatian or Jesuit tradition with this idea of finding God in all things. Mm-hmm. And certainly St. Francis and the Franciscan tradition of, of, of acknowledging, you know, the blessings, the beatitude of the created realm or the, the created order. So, so it's not anything unique to the Celts, but, but there's just, there's just this beautiful literature. And I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, now obviously Ireland, you've got some really, really beautiful areas and, and, and Scotland too, but, but a lot of these folks lived in very rugged conditions, you know, on the North Sea, uh, living almost a subsistence life, you know, the farming, uh, fishing. And so it's not like they were just, you know, kind of these cushy folks with this, you know, with, with the bunny rabbits running around and, and lots of daffodils and so forth. You know, they, they had an honest, you know, an, an authentic relationship with nature and understood that, that, that nature can be, can be cruel and that, you know, the sailors don't always return from sea, you know, that kind of thing. So, so, it's, so it's not a naive recognition of nature but it's a, um, but I think it is an authentic one, and 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 just you know, and and probably there are some, some vestigial remains of the the indigenous spirituality, that that would have been there historically before the coming of Christianity, but but just this simply this notion that that creation from creation you don't have to retreat from creation to find God. God meets us right in the thick of everything. You know, and I talk about the you know these two kind of concepts, the thin place, this idea of certain places where where the presence of the divine seems to be particularly keenly felt. And then and then the holy well, the the water source that became places of veneration and and devotion. And you know, and again, probably were prior to the coming of Christianity, uh, you know, there's some pretty solid evidence that there was veneration of water among the pagan Celts. Well, you know, when Christianity came, there, it wasn't just this idea of, oh, that's evil, you can't do that anymore, but rather this idea of how to knit that traditional practice 
into into the new story, into the new the new narrative. And so you find the holy wells throughout the Celtic world, you know, other 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 parts of Christianity too, but it's such a feature in in the Celtic world where these these water sources are are places of pilgrimage, places where people go to pray the rosary. Mm. They go to they go to make petitions, they go to give thanks. And, um, you know, and so, and it's, and they're still active, you know, that kind of devotional spirituality is still very much part of the landscape in Ireland and Scotland and places like that. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about NERT. And I could be mispronouncing it too. I'm not a native Irish speaker. You know, I just, I just know the tiniest little bit. So, um, you know, somebody can, can go, you know, find somebody, you know, or find, find a recording. I think if you go online, there are websites where you can click and, the, and a native speaker will, will pronounce these various words. It's, it's not, it's not, as intimidating as Ringshiv, it's spelled N-E-A-R-T. It kind of looks like heart with the top of the H lopped off. But, um, but it's a word that basically, the basic meaning of it is strength. But it, you know, what, what it reminds me of, if you're familiar with Hildegard of Bingen, the, the mm-hmm. 12th century uh, German Benedictine nun, she writes about what she called veriditas, which is related to the word viridian, you know, and it's, and, and viriditas is this kind of like green energy or, or green, um, force, if you will, almost like a star Wars force. But I think she had more in mind, kind of like the action of the Holy spirit in nature. Mm. And so, so the, this Celtic notion of nert seems to have a similar kind of function, this idea that that the action of God, the action of the Holy Spirit, is not something that hovers above creation, but something that is woven through creation. And so it's nert that makes the grass grow. It's nert that makes, makes, makes the flowers bloom. It's nert that, that, that gives us our, our vivifying energy, our, our spirit and our imagination and our creativity and so it's it's you know it's the energy of creation the energy of life but it's not you know don't think then that that just reduces the holy spirit or reduces god to some sort of you know star warsian force it's <laughs> there's there's still kind of this this presence mm. this this you know the the the, the nerd is sentient it's alive mm. and and it and it and it meets us and it and it it embraces us if that if that's a word mm. so you know so this is something that that again it's 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 it it shows up in various places in the tradition there was a an Irish writer, I think his name was John Rorden. I could have that wrong, but his book is called The Music of What Happens. Mm. So he talks about Nert, and then then this writer who I just adore, and I talk about him in my book, Sean O'Dwean, mm. who was a um, 
uh, and I've also heard it pronounced Odun. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's again different, but, but, but he just passed away a year or two ago, but he was a Benedictine nun. He lived in a monk rather, uh, just gave him a sex change. A Benedictine, <laughs> Benedictine monk. He lived in Glenstall Abbey, the famous Benedictine monastery in Ireland, but he was an authority on Celtic spirituality. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I talk about his, my favorite of his books is a book called where three streams meet. And this idea that Celtic spirituality is almost like a French braid, if you will, of kind of the the ancient, ancient, prehistoric, even pre-Celtic spirituality, the spirituality of the people who built Stonehenge and who built Newgrange and and these ancient passage tombs and stone circles. Mm -hmm. And then then comes the actual kind of Celtic people or their culture, Mm -hmm. and and they brought kind of a mythology of of ancestor veneration mm-hmm. and of the, what, what we now kind of think of as the fairies, but the fairies would have been kind of this vestigial remain of the old deities, the old gods and goddesses mm-hmm. uh, before the coming of Christianity, but, but not, not in kind of a Greek or Roman pantheon sense, but maybe more almost an animistic kind of sense. The mm-hmm. deities represent the spirit of the spirit of the land, the spirit of the rivers, the spirit of the the mountains, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And yet in the myths, they they do become personified. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the third stream, the third braid in the French braid is the coming of Christianity. But this idea that that these three streams are woven together, mm-hmm. And that they're not hostile to one another, but they actually kind of create something that is larger than the sum of their parts. But he talks about this 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 energy of nert that seems to be kind of kind of hidden in the folklore or in the mm. tradition. And and you were you mentioned too, especially at the beginning of your book, how there's so many myths and legends and songs and poetry. The the whole um, tradition is just saturated with that and it's much more of a, a song to be sung than than prepar- prepositions to to learn um, that's that's such a rich part of it well and you know it's um if if we have time i would love to just tell a brief little story that I, that i think is in the book um and it's the story of saint bridget who is my favorite of the saints mm. and she um she was she was again an abbess of this dual gender monastery, so had spiritual authority over both men and women, and uh, lots of stories around her. She's considered one of the gr- three great saints of Ireland. The other two being Saint Columba and Saint Patrick, of course. But there's a story that one time she is traveling with two of her sisters, two of the kind of the junior nuns from her community, and you got to remember Ireland is not a fully Christian land at this time. So you have some people who are pagan, some people who are Christian. And and Bridget comes from nobility, so she would have moved in kind of the upper, you know, the upper circles of society. And they're traveling and they come to nightfall and they need to find a place to stay. And there is a local chieftain or you know, noblemen. It wouldn't be an aristocrat like you think of Dunton Abbey. You know, this is this is fifteen hundred years ago. But this person who would have been, you know, kind of the socially prominent leader of the the community, and he was a pagan chieftain. But Bridget uh, secures lodging for her and her two sisters, and it it includes the opportunity to break bread. Now it happens to be during the season of Lent. And so they gather with all of these pagans around the table. And of course, what are the pagans eating? They've got pork and they've got, they've got bacon and they've got these big yummy slices of bacon. And so one of the servants comes and, and puts a plate with two big 
hunks of bacon in front of each of the nuns. And the younger nuns, even without thinking, they immediately say, oh, we can't eat this. It's Lent and it would be a violation of our fast. And as soon as they say that, Bridget stands up and she grabs the two of them and she throws them out of the house. And then she comes back and she sits down and she says to the Lord, she says, please forgive my sisters for their inability to receive your hospitality. And so the moral of the story is that Bridget, as pious as she was, she felt that that kind of traditions of hospitality mattered more than than just liturgical observances. In other words, you know, she would she would not have taken the Lenten fast lightly, but because they were in this place of kinship and of of being given hospitality from from this this non-Christian who who would have had no reason to observe the Lenten fast, it was actually more holy for her to receive his hospitality and eat the bacon mm. than it would be to to create to create some sort of a artificial barrier. Mm. And I think that that story it, it, it says so much about the Celtic tradition. It's a funny story. <laughs> it's charming. It's down to earth. But it also shows this you know how the importance of relationship and and especially the importance of hospitality yeah. in this in this way of thinking. Well, tell us a little bit about what's next for you, Carl. Well. Um, well, I have a book that is just gone into production with um, William B. Erdman's. I don't have a release date, and mm-hmm. I don't even—I can't even tell you for sure what the title will be. <laughs> but the but the working title of the book is "The Unteachable Lessons," mm-hmm. and so and the manuscript is finished. It's it's now in production. So I'm hoping it'll be published sometime late in 2019, maybe early 2020. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So that's on its way. That book is, it's not a Celtic book and it's not necessarily even a book about the mystics. It's a little bit of a departure for me. It's more of uh, kind of reflecting a, a lot of stories out of my own life. So maybe it's a more personal book. I wouldn't call it a memoir though, mm-hmm. because it is still, um, it's still a book of, of kind of contemplative reflection, but really kind of this idea that, that our lives are our best spiritual teachers and that, you know, so this idea of what is an unteachable lesson, it's a lesson you cannot learn from a book or from, from another teacher. You have to learn from living and from, from, from God's action in your life and in the life of your loved ones. So, um, so we'll see. Like I say, it's something new for me. But, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the book. It, it, you know, I've been working on it for several years now, and, and I'm just thrilled that it's, um, it's, it's now in production. So that'll, oh, that'll, be, that'll be the next one. Yeah. And then who knows after that. So. <laughs> Will you come back on to share that one when, uh, a little later on? If 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 you've got a slot that's available, I would be thrilled to come. There's back and always chat with you. always a standing uh, opening for you. There's always a standing <laughs> invitation for you, Carl. I really love having you on. Wonderful. Well, thank you. It's a delight to chat with you, Lisa. Thank you. 
if you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.